This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with St. Pierre. You might already be familiar with their delicious brioche. Inspired by Parisian cafe culture, St. Pierre brioche is light, soft and golden, making for an ideal pairing with both sweet and savoury dishes. Honestly, it's so good. Burgers in a brioche bun are a match made in heaven. And leftover roast chicken sandwiches in soft brioche is on a par with the Boxing Day sandwich, in my opinion. One of the most delicious things that we used to do when we were little was to make brioche sandwiches with lots of fridge cold butter and then squares of dark chocolate, which I think is a traditional French afternoon snack and it's heaven. (laughs) If you haven't tried it, you must. You can find Saint-Pierre in selected supermarkets nationwide today and make every day magnifique. Thank you very much to Saint-Pierre. This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you by Lloyds Bank. With their Club Lloyds current account, you can now get 12 months of Disney Plus as your lifestyle benefit. To know me is to know that I love watching things on TV, so I am so excited to tell you about this. You might think that Disney Plus is just for Disney films. And yes, it's great for all of them. We must have watched Disney's Frozen at least 100 times by now. But it's so much more than that. With Disney Plus, there is endless entertainment with exclusive originals, brand new series, blockbuster movies, and it's just one of the great benefits that you can now get with a Club Lloyds account. I highly recommend watching The Bear if you haven't seen it yet. It's all about a talented chef who's presented with the challenge of overhauling his family sandwich shop. Season two is coming soon and I can't wait. Lloyds Bank are taking care of not only your banking needs, but entertainment too. Visit lloydsbank.com forward slash Club Lloyds to find out more. £3 monthly fee is charged to maintain the Club Lloyds account, but waived each month that you pay in £2,000 or more. UK residents, 18 and over, Disney Plus subscription required. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much to Lloyds Bank. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. You know, starting a podcast is a very strange thing because it kind of feels the same regardless of if there's one person listening or thousands because I can't see any of you. And honestly, I never expected anyone other than my mom and possibly husband to listen along. And it's just the most amazing and exciting thing to know that so many of you are listening and it's very surreal to be the top food podcast in the UK right now. I promise I'm not going to keep banging on about it, but I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you because you're the reason that that has happened. Today's guest is the brilliant Max LaManna, who I only knew from his hugely successful cooking videos. But I think that's the thing about this podcast is we get to find out about the journey of how someone got to where they are today and often the many twists and turns and just get to know them a bit better. If you follow us on social media, you'll know that each week we do a quick fire with the guest. And one of the questions is whether they have a party trick. And some people do, some people don't. Max did, and his was doing the worm. And it was the first time anyone has performed the worm during a recording of the podcast. So I'm going to pop that on Instagram for you to see because it was very funny. Max has got a new cookbook out called You Can Cook This and the premise is very clever. It's all recipes based on using up the ingredients that we tend to waste the most. All the recipes are quick and easy, which is great because we all seem to have less and less time. It covers everything from weeknight dinners, comforting one pots to sweet treats and instant crowd pleasers. I have a copy and I can highly recommend Anyway, that is now enough waffling from me. Thank you very much again to our season sponsor, Lloyd's Bank, and to St. Pierre for sponsoring today's episode. We couldn't bring this to you without them. And I do hope you enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Max LaManna. Max is a champion of the low-waste and sustainable lifestyle. He's a chef, presenter, and award-winning author. He has been described as a bona fide millennial heartthrob 
His recipe content and food shows have been seen by over a billion people. He's been plant-based since 2011 and says his biggest ambition has always been to make sure his recipes are accessible to everyone without ever being preachy about being vegan. Through his viral recipe videos and work with BBC Earth and beyond, Max has inspired hundreds of thousands of people across the world to rethink their approach to food consumption and has made it his mission to breathe new life into leftovers that are typically destined for the bin. The son of a French chef father and a mother of Italian heritage, food was very important to them as a family when he was growing up. In the early days of his career, he supported himself by cooking everywhere, from pizzerias to Michelin-starred restaurants. And it was this that ultimately led him to challenge his own values. Max has said, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. This stuff our grandparents were taught as children. It's important to bring it back. People are on board. They just need those lessons. Welcome, Max. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what an introduction. Thank you. You're welcome. I can follow you around uh, yeah. repeating that. Yeah, if please. Like. Yeah. <laughs> so Lamana is Lamana. a very cool surname. And I think it actually means the great hands. You've said that growing up, you were always fascinated by food and you always wanted to be using your hands and getting stuck in. I wondered, what does food mean to you? And has that changed over time? What does food mean to me? I love cooking food. I love being around food. I love sharing food with others. I think there's this moment where I can prepare something, put it on a plate and share it with others and just seeing the joy and the life come to people's eyes. I mean, we eat with our eyes. So there's that first moment and we use our other senses and everything just comes alive. And I feel I have this, maybe I have a superpower where I can kind of like, I could see that on people. I could see it happening in, in, in front of me. Um, and that brings me so much joy. And that helps me continue doing what I'm doing with my passions. Mm. That quote in the introduction is really interesting because it's actually something that comes up time and time again in regard to different things. But the idea that the answer to so many of our current problems can actually be found by how people used to live is a really interesting notion. Mm. I think, as you say in that quote, not only was the sustainable way of life how our grandparents mm. lived, but it was actually taught to them as children. Like why mm. and how do you think that stopped happening? I think the invention of the refrigerator, though it's great technology, I think it forced us to change our, our ways. Of course, with the food industry in the, the 50s and 60s and 70s, pushing TV dinners in front of families where they lost that connection of sourcing local ingredients, maybe from their garden or from a nearby farm and preparing meals then and there, fresh, readily available. I think the expansion of businesses around the world, people not having the time to cook a meal. Mm. I think there's a lot of components and variables that come into play to, I think, why we've lost touch with food and cooking in general. Mm. I think, did I read that your grandmother is 90 and she's just started composting? <laughs> she's now 95, I think. And uh, sometimes when I go back home, I, I, I see that she still has her food waste bin, but she's this, she's an old cranky Italian yeah, okay. grandmother. <laughs> The best kind. Let's talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Yes. So that, that dish for me is spaghetti meatballs with a garden salad. So I would wake up every weekend, Saturday, to the smell of sautéed onions and garlic. And that was my alarm clock. I'd wake up, go downstairs. My mother cooked on weekends. My father would cook Monday through Friday. Mm. Uh, so we had the smell of garlic and onions spreading throughout the household. Is that because you were a typical teenager waking up at lunchtime or did no. she start early? No, she would. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. She's not she's not cooking this at two o'clock in the afternoon. She was she started cooking this, you know, seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning because it was a long process. Eight hours of cooking this tomato sauce. She was making enough tomato sauce that would last the whole week. So my mom worked in television and she'd go in at two o'clock in the afternoon and stay until the evening news and then head home around 12, one o'clock in the morning to come oh, back wow. home. Yeah. So she was, she had a big role at the network. She was coming home late at night. So <laughs> she prepared tomato sauce that would sit in the freezer and dad would reheat it and all those things. So yeah, early in the morning we'd have sauteed onions and garlic and it was just slow cooked tomato sauce throughout the afternoon. Oh, yum. You mentioned in one interview that your dad's game was to leave 10 pots of spices on the table <laughs> as you ate your spaghetti bolognese and he'd get you to pick out which five were in the dish. You've said that you don't know if that was to teach you or just get you to be quiet whilst you yeah. were eating. But that did strike me because 
lots of children help in the kitchen and they help to cook, but it sounds like your dad was really passionate about actually getting you to understand ingredients. I feel like you see me because you're saying things that I haven't thought of in, in maybe a few months or maybe years. Yeah. So you've done your homework. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, he was challenging us. I think it was a fun game. My dad was always having fun. My dad's a character. I'm taking on his ways and that's that's quite scary. But yeah, my dad's such a character and he would leave the ingredients out. And again, I think it was for us to potentially um, use our senses when eating food because we would have home-cooked meals every single day, every single night. Uh, rarely did we ever go out to eat. And so for, for us as children, I think it was also a tactic for him to um, okay, be quiet because I'm, I'm tired of having four children to look after in the afternoon. I think that's a tactic I might adopt in my own life, Max. <laughs> <laughs> you said that you always felt you grew up in a very foodie household, but now when you look back, your mom really only had a handful of dishes on yeah. rotation. And that since working in restaurants and traveling the world, your mom's cooking <sighs> doesn't necessarily live up in your mind to how you used to feel about it. And Max... I think there are going to be mothers around the world listening to this and having their hearts shattering at the sound of that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, mom. I hope she li she listens to this and she knows that I, I'm sorry. It was difficult because it was uh, being a child and not going out to eat and try different food at different restaurants. I was trying the same thing almost on a rotation and it got so good, at least in my mind and in my, for my, my taste, because I wasn't trying other things until mm. I actually went and explored the world. I, I moved to a different city and started trying new cuisines, new flavors. I mean, I think I was in my mid twenties when I tried an avocado for the first time. So I was used to just like enjoying food that was the same usual culprit ingredients that you'd find in the, the bottom of the fridge drawer. Mm. So my mom doesn't really cook and my father has like a few dishes as well that's because they're so tired at what, you well, know, yeah. they have, they've had jobs and they've had businesses that they've ran. And so I think it's a lot, mm. especially when you have four children. I, I, I think parents just like taking on that workload is a lot on parents. And so to come up with a new dish every single week or every single night, I think is a lot. Mm. Whereas me, I'm like, I'm going to try something new today. There's a privilege in that. Yeah, four children is a lot and your mom was working. And obviously you're not saying that you're not sentimental about your childhood dishes. It's just you only know what you know. And it is a strange thing being a child that you have no choice over what you're eating. Well, I also thought I, the food was so good. And I thought I grew up in a foodie household because I didn't have friends come over. It was a weird upbringing for me, not having friends to come over. Until I was 18, I was the captain of my uh, cross-country team. And we had like a pasta night and I was captain. I was like, dad, we need to have the guys from the team come over and we're going to cook them pasta to get, you know, loaded up on carbs so we can get ready for the race the next day. And he's like, okay. And he just prepared his sauce, made pasta. And everyone was just like, oh my goodness, this is great. I love this. And I'm like, yeah, this is what I've had since I was a kid. And, you know, I go, I've, I've gone back home and I've tried food now and I'm thinking, man, this is this is not that good. <laughs> this is not good. Have you ever cooked with fresh tomatoes? Uh, I'm sorry, mom and dad. Growing up, your father had the franchise to two Subway fast food stores, which I mm. think he first opened two weeks after you were mm -hmm. born and sold when you were around 15. So they must have played a very prominent part in your childhood. Obviously, that world is a far cry from what you're doing now in terms of the food itself. But do you think in a way that was an important part in the journey of how you got to where you are today? I think being around food at a young age, I think, has played a role in my in my development. Mm. I, Lamana, by the way, yeah. I always thought it meant the great hands. Oh. And then I actually went to Italy last yeah. year for the first time, being an Italian descendant, going to Italy for the first time. Um, I didn't come from money, so we didn't have family holidays where we can just go and explore the world. So went to Italy for the first time because I'm only two hours away being here in the UK now. I introduced myself to these two Italian chefs and they asked me, oh, you're, you look Italian. What's your surname? And I say, Lamana. Oh, Lamana. Oh, you're from Sicily. I'm like, I guess so. I had no idea. He says, you know what Lamana means? And Italians love telling other Italians or other people what their surname meant or means. And he says, Lamana, Lamana de Cello. Lamana de Cello is the hand of God. 
God providing food for those who are hungry and thirsty, who needed shelter, who are, you know, the, the disciples were out in the desert or those who were hungry and need of water and, and, and shelter. And I just, man, my jaw was to the ground. I just thought, oh my goodness. And then he looks at me, he's like, you're doing, like you're your namesake, you're doing that by feeding and providing food, but like in your own way. Mm. Understanding that all now, and I look back at my childhood and, you know, my father having those restaurants when I was a child growing up inside those restaurants, seeing behind the scenes, like whenever we went out to eat and occasionally we did go out to eat, I was always looking in the back of the restaurant, looking to see like, oh, I wonder what it looks like back there. Cause I had, in my mind, I know what the back of a restaurant looks like at a young age. So um, I think it has played a huge role in, mm. in what I do. And it's the only thing I know. Isn't that amazing? I, I love stories like that. If you had grown up knowing that that's what it meant, that would mean one thing. But to sort of take the road that you have and be doing what you're doing and then find out after the fact, that is kind of amazing, isn't it? It's not that I set out to you know, work in the food industry. I was pursuing other careers. And so food was always in the background. And it was the one job that I can hold on to and have the flexibility. You know, when I was modeling and acting, I can, you know, step away or I could do the modeling and acting in the daytime, go on casting calls or auditions whilst doing uh, the nighttime work of waiting tables or bartending or cooking. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. I had to think about this because I grew up having parents who just cooked. I never got my hands in the kitchen to start cooking. So for me, uh, that that was my first job. And I was uh, a doughboy in a pizza restaurant oh, yeah. at 16. I worked in a, it was windowless. It was a hot pizza restaurant in the summer. I didn't, I didn't work there that long. I only worked there for a few months. It was really difficult being in control of uh, making the dough and then shaping the dough for each order. And I think back to why would a manager give me that job at 16 who's ne- like the dough like makes the pizza. If you don't have the dough and it's not right, if it's too thin in certain areas, like the pizza is just going to collapse in certain areas. It was a very particular pizza. It wasn't your average circle shaped pizza. It was a square. So I had to stretch out the pizza in different shapes and, and roll it out in different corners. And it had, you know, a circle is easy because you have that, you have the rolling pin, you could roll it out really easily. But with the square, giving me that face of, oh my goodness. <laughs> it was a lot, it was very difficult to do. So yeah, I only did that for a little bit, but learning how to make a pizza at 16 was, um, was an incredible opportunity for me. Yeah. Also being in a restaurant kitchen during the summer is not funny. With about 20 other people in a small windowless hot kitchen in the summer is not fun. Yeah. You really don't know what it's like to be hot until you've been <laughs> in that scenario. Let's talk about your early career, because after college, by the age of 21, you were studying to be an actor in New York. You were modeling while auditioning for roles. What was it about being an actor that appealed to you? I think I've always I've always been in front of the camera since an early age. I spoke about my mother working in television and my mother would put me in front of the teleprompter and the the news anchor chair and I'd read the teleprompter. Tonight's news at 6 p.m. I'm <laughs> Axel Mana. You know what I mean? Like there's something fun about being, for me at least. I could tell that wasn't your first time, by the way. That, oh, sounded, yeah, that sounded great. <laughs> years, years of experience there. So for me, uh, you're, you're in this moment and you have to be honest and truthful in that moment. But I was on a casting call for a photographer, Bruce Weber, okay. who's like a well-known, famous photographer. I don't know if he's canceled now, but... Anyways, I'm in this casting call. I'm only three months into modeling and I'm sitting in his office whilst not knowing that he is Bruce Weber. So I'm sitting there and he's having a conversation with his assistant and I'm just sitting there going, am I going to meet this Bruce Weber guy? I didn't say that. I'm just sitting there going, okay, okay. And then he says, oh, by the way, this is Bruce. I'm like, oh, oh, hello. I didn't, didn't look up and search and see all of that. So he says to me, you're not a model. And I was so naive. And I was like, yeah, yes, I am. I'm with, I'm with this agency. They just signed. No, 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 no. You're an actor. Oh. And then I was like, oh, someone sees me. Wow. Yeah. At, at, at a young, at 21, I think prior to that, I had really, outside of my parents, there really wasn't anyone who gave me any sort of positive feedback or praise. Like you're doing great. Or have you ever considered this? Or have you ever considered that? And so I think having someone say something to me 
off the back of just signing with an agency, someone tell me, you're an actor. And then I started thinking about my childhood and how I was in front of the camera and I play around a lot in front of the camera. <laughs> when I see that red light on, yeah. it's showtime. <laughs> Ding. Ding. Yep. <laughs> so I think that catapulted me into, I'm going to learn how to act. Mm. I'm going to go to acting school. Isn't it amazing thinking back over experiences like that and how powerful one meeting with a particular person can be when you're at that age? Like someone can completely change the course of your life through a throwaway comment or perhaps it is something that they do strongly Mm. believe, but Mm. it it can completely alter the way that you see things. I'm grateful for that because it led me to where I am today. So you modeled for the likes of Abercrombie, Hollister, Jack Wills. You appeared in Seventeen Magazine and Vogue. So you're obviously doing very well. At this time to get by, you were cooking in restaurants and you've talked about the lifestyle that so often comes with working in restaurants where the staff go out afterwards and there's lots of drinking, drugs and late nights. You've said of this time, you said yes to everything. Was that a very conscious thing in terms of deciding to say yes? You were just wanting to experience everything that you could. Was it a conscious thing? Mm, For me, it was, I'm now 21, 22. I'm living in New York City sleeping in a basement in like a one bedroom flat. I don't have that much money. All these campaigns sound great, but they don't pay anything. Struggling to make ends meet. And I'm in this great city. I'm going to say yes to everything and open my arms and allow things to happen. And obviously, you know, I'm conscious that if it's going to lead me into trouble, I'm going to make that decision. Okay, this is heading, heading somewhere dark. But I thought it was a time for me to have fun and explore and see who I am. And the other moment was when I was in acting school and, and I'm studying a scene and the acting coach says, you don't really know what it feels like to experience hurt. I think something along those lines. And I thought, yeah, you're right. I don't know what hurt means and, and what, that, what that feels like. And so he says, you need to go and live. And, so, and he says, that doesn't mean go out and, you know, paint the city red and, you know, steal cop car or anything like mm. that. You haven't lived yet. Go what and meaning live. he wanted you to go and fall in love and have your heart broken. I and- think so. I'm still young at this point, having grew up in a small town in Connecticut, haven't really experienced anything. I was late to everything. I didn't party. I didn't do drugs. I didn't do alcohol when I was growing up in high school or, or in college didn't go to parties. I was kind of like a loner or an outcast. I had like my one friend in high school. Max, I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear that. My wife doesn't believe in me. And so my wife had to ask my sister and my brother and my mom and dad and say, is this true? And they all, they're on record. (laughs) No, no, it's completely true. He had one friend. (laughs) I had one friend. Yeah. It was difficult for me. I was Hmm. picked on. I was bullied. And I, I mean, being in a small town, I grew up, there's a lot. I charge for this, Max. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm oh, therapist. is this therapy? Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, I grew up with a learning disability. I had a speech impediment. Mm. I didn't speak until I was five and I'm dyslexic. So in school, I took my time. The teacher would say, read this paragraph and I would read it and it would take me, you know, three minutes to read a single paragraph. And then she'd ask, what does that mean? What's the, what's the meaning behind this story of, you know, spot the dog? I have no idea. So it was just literally information going in one ear out the other. I think kids in my school who I grew up with from an early age all the way up to, you know, 13, 14 when we graduated, and I was picked on and bullied from these kids because they saw me as the weak link. Mm. Uh, high school, went to a bigger school. We had 250 kids in each class. And so wow. we had about 1,000 kids in the, in the whole entire school. So I think it was a little bit, coming from a class of 30 to 250, I was able to almost reinvent yourself, reinvent myself, but almost not go anywhere near anyone who could potentially cause a threat to me. God, it's it's very difficult Mm. being a child, being a teenager, isn't it? There's no amount of money that in the world that could cause me to go back and live that time again. You know how people say it's the best time of your life. I I think that's actually a very cruel thing to say to a child, particularly if they're not having a very nice time to be told Mm. that this is the best time of your life and you've got to savor every (laughs) moment because for some people it isn't. If you think that that is as good as it's going to get, that can be quite a sort of demoralizing thing to 
know. Another experience that I wanted to ask you about was you've described taking ayahuasca, an Amazonian hallucinogenic, at a ceremony in LA, which you've said was such an interesting and traumatic experience. That sounds like a very pivotal moment for you in many ways. Can you tell us a bit more about that? This is therapy. Oh, yeah. this is, <laughs> we're going to retitle the, the podcast to... Desert Island Therapy. Desert Island Therapy, plus the dishes. <laughs> Again, being yes, saying yes to everything, uh, having a good time. I think I had friends who I trusted and said, do you want to partake in this this moment? And, you know, I heard about it a year before and friends of mine said, you know, if it comes your way and the opportunity comes and presents itself, don't go chasing it. If it comes to you, then you know when the time is right. And so a year later it presented itself and I just moved to Los Angeles uh, after graduating acting school. And I thought some people may go and celebrate and get drunk and celebrate on the, on the town. And I thought, let me find some sort of way of tapping into my subconscious mind in another way. That for me, that experience was, you know, it opened my eyes to certain things It opened up the past things that I I've, I've kept trapped down for a long time. However, it was time for me to reflect and, and see how I see the world and why we do anything and why we're here. So it was a very, imagine like meditating, but meditating for a very, very, very long time where you go into a deep, deep, deep part of your subconscious mind. So how long does it last? It lasted, I think, eight hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. eight hours. And you're in a group. You're in a group and it's secure. It's like locked off. Like they close the group. People can leave and go if they want but they're meant to stay within the group. You're safe. Um, You're safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're safe. And there's guardians or there's people who are kind of watching who are outside the circle who are making sure like no one's going to do anything crazy. Um, We were singing songs. I was speaking uh, Brazilian Portuguese at one point. And do you speak that? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) So we were singing songs in Brazilian uh, Portuguese and and playing, uh, this guy was playing a song and I'm, literally singing the song verbatim with him. And he pulled me aside afterwards. He's like, do you know Brazilian Portuguese? This is after, this is the after fact. Like I I imagine, oh, I was maybe just mumbling along with him. And he's, he pulled me after we, we came out of it in the morning out of the ceremony. And he says, do you have any ties to, you know, Brazil or speaking Portuguese? And I no. he's like, that was, that's something else. He's like, I've never experienced that. Um, That's like when you hear about people coming out of a coma for a long time and they can suddenly speak uh, a language that they have never spoken before. It's amazing what the mind can do. That's incredible. Yeah, I've never done it since. But yeah. (laughs) A once in a lifetime. Yeah, it was a once in a lifetime moment. Let's pause there and talk about the third Desert Island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Yes. This was the most difficult question to ask. This was a hard one for me. So... For me, it is, it's a restaurant in Amsterdam called Men Impossible, mm-hmm. and they do a three-course menu. How they set it up is the kitchen is, within, is in the middle of the restaurant, so you see everything that's happening in the kitchen. It feels very intimate, but they have, they have limited seats, and they have them every hour. So um, a group of six people come in at you know, 6 o'clock, next group will come in at 7, 8, and so on. And the chef just goes through the whole menu and everyone gets the same exact thing. Wow. I think it's kind of genius. To, mm. Less stress. You know exactly what you got to cook. You finish that off. As soon as that's done, start the next one. Start it from the top. Starter, your, your, your main, um, and your pudding. And so the dish is a white and red ramen, which is garlic and chili flavored broth plus extra noodles. I always get extra noodles if I can. Again, I think what makes this the the best dish for me is just the flavor and the love that goes into it. The chefs, you see it happening right in front of you and there's a lot of love. You could just see they're really calm and like there's no yelling, there's no shouting. There's three staff. There's one who's serving the tables, who's delivering the food and then two chefs in the kitchen. That's it. Amazing. You make it sound so simple. Mm. Mm. And that's probably why it was the best. Yeah. I've had it twice and it's delicious. Oh, that's interesting because if something's that good, it's sometimes a bit scary to go back and have it again, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And for me, it it did not have that experience. It was delicious. That's good to know. Your acting dreams came true at the age of 25 when you landed a role on Days of Our Lives, which I have to say, Max, as someone in the UK, I've never seen, but I do know it through Joey Tribbiani and friends. (laughs) So I know it was a very big deal. 
I think from everything I read, the success was short lived. And I wondered mm. about that because that must have been such an exciting thing to happen. But then for it to end in such an abrupt way, it must have been shattering. Hmm. Made me really take a long, hard look in the mirror to think, is this really what I want? And, and I remember, and I thought back to the, the, my acting coach who told me, hey, go and live. He says, the job is doing the preparation. Mm. That's the job. That's the job that you're aiming for. Whatever work is doing the preparation. The, the added bonus is you get going to get on set and to, you know, when they say action or cut, that's just an extra, that's fun. But the preparation and the work is before. And it made me think about that because I was aiming for something else. I was aiming for being on screen and the action and the cut and living this fabulous life. And my view of acting was a bit skewed with, you know, wanting fame and success and wanting to, to achieve fame and success at that age, I think comes back to my childhood and having friends who said, you'll never amount to anything or teachers say that to me, you'll never amount to anything. And I know there's a lot of people who have that similar experience too. And this was that moment where I'm, I'm going to, and show you, you know? Mm. And I w- I've always had that laser focus of, I'm going to show you. I'm going to be the last one laughing. Oh, you have showed them, Max. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> but I think it's so interesting, and we, we do talk about it all the time, but that's because it's true. I think we learn so much more from the things that don't go to plan and often getting exactly what we thought we wanted shows us exactly why that isn't what we want. Do you think if things hadn't gone that way and the acting job had gone well and it had led to more, do you think you would have been happy in that life? I think I would have been happier. I think I needed some help. I I think I would have appreciated a coach or a mentor who would have said, hey, these are, this is what's going to happen. You know, these moments are going to come. They're going to go. It's like rain. It's like water. Mm. It's like the wind. They come and they go like waves. It was difficult because soon after I landed that spot on the show, my manager decided he didn't want to manage anymore. So he dropped all his clients and he wanted to get back into acting. So after taking 10 years, 15 years off, he wanted to get back into acting. And then my agency also dropped me, I think two days later. Oh no, Max. So it just felt the, the career I was building was just crumbling down. And that made me take a long, hard look in the mirror. What is it that I really want? In one of the worst segues we've ever done, we're going to pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. Max, what is your favorite sandwich? My favorite sandwich is a, it's a sandwich from Broadway Deli. Have you been to Broadway? No. It's Broadway Deli in Broadway. Uh, And I don't know the name of it, but I know they call it a doorstopper. Have you ever had a doorstopper? I, not yeah. this specific one, but yeah, okay. I've had a doorstop. I didn't know what a doorstopper was. Um, and I thought it was quite strange that they would serve doorstoppers <laughs> on a menu. Um, so I, I, I thought I'd give it a try. Um, so I like that thinking that you still went yeah, ahead yeah. and ordered it. <laughs> sure, I'll try this doorstopper. What do you mm, Tastes like dirt. Um, those three slices of bread, they're toasted, grilled tofu, steamed slices of sweet potato, lettuce, tomato, piccalilli that is made from the store. The actual Broadway deli make their own piccalilli, vegan mayonnaise, and I think pickles. And I've gone home and recreated the dish or recreated the sandwich because I love sandwiches. Mm. And uh, yeah, that's my favorite sandwich. Was it as good when you made it? No, there's something. I think it's the bread. Mm. You know, you sometimes you have to go through pain for it to feel good, you know? And, And you're like, why are you talking about pain right now with a sandwich? Because the sandwich, when you bite into it, it doesn't sound appetizing at all. The bread is is toasted, so it just rips the inside of your mouth. Oh, that that's what and I look for in a sandwich. And that feels great. <laughs> now, when you get around the, the corners of the bread, um, I, it's enjoyable. They're going to be delighted with that yeah. review. Shout I think. outs to Broadway Deli. <laughs> it's a delicious sandwich. 
After a lot of soul searching, you moved to Sydney and you wanted to get back to cooking. You found a job working in an amazing vegan paleo zero waste chocolate factory. You've said that that was the first time that you actually heard someone use the word vegan. And when you did hear that, you thought they were mispronouncing the word vegetarian. Um, But by 2017, you were fully immersed in veganism and also the zero waste lifestyle. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that. Australia, Sydney, what a... I don't think I'll ever go back. Um, and I say that cause it's just a f- long flight to take. Um, I was living in before we, before I got there, I was living in Los, Los Angeles and bumped into this girl on the street, um, who caught my eye, who was actually visiting my next door neighbor. And I immediately like fell in love with this, this woman and thought, Oh my goodness, she's incredible. But I know that she's, she lives in Australia. After a couple of weeks, we started getting to know each other and I ended up, she told me, she says, you need to come to Australia with me. And I thought, what do you think I'm going to say? Yes. <laughs> so I'm still on the yes, the yes train. So I said, yes, um, ended up going back down there. She had a chocolate business and, um, learned everything about chocolate. It wasn't fabulous because I didn't spend any time at the beach. I didn't do anything fun. I was managing cafes and I was working in this chocolate factory. I literally worked every single day while I was in Sydney, but it was a lot of soul searching because I was at that point where I had just lost my management, my agency, thinking about life, thinking about what I wanted to do and what is it that I want to create? What do I want to put out into the world? And she was a lot older than I was. She was five years older than I was. And she said to me, how are you, I'm 27 at this time. She says, how are you going to support our family? And I thought, oh my goodness, uh, I've never had anyone ever ask me that. And that literally kind of threw me into, into another gear that I've never thought I could get into. I didn't sleep for three days, literally laid in bed with my eyes open, thinking about what is it that I'm going to do? What is it going to, you know, I'm like, I'll, I'll work in the chocolate factory. I'll be the Charlie <laughs> that you, you've never had. I'll be Charlie, you know, working in the, the Wonka factory. And uh, she's like, no, you need to go and do your own thing. So, yeah, didn't sleep for three days. And what, I, just because you were worrying about the future. <laughs> and Yeah, overthinking. I've never overthinked this. I've never had that moment in my life where I was overthinking that that much. Finally, on the third day, I said, I need to get out of this funk. I'm going to go down to the beach. I sat down like near a cliffside. Um, not what you think I'm going to do. <laughs> um, sat down like in this remote area of the beach and fell asleep. I was kind of closed my eyes and just like listen to the waves and let just the moment, you know, come to you if things are going to happen. I, you know, I set an intention. Okay. What is it that I want? Fell asleep after, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, I woke up and the idea came to me and said, write a list of 10 things you could see yourself doing every single day. And I thought, okay, yeah, right. I'll do that. And I think what I heard was if you do these 10 things every day, like it will bring you happiness. And that's all that matters is happiness. It's not the fame. It's not the success. It's about being happy. And I thought, okay. So I wrote that list and I set out to do those 10 every single day. If I could do a few of them every day, great. And food was on there. Cooking was on there. And I just head down, started cooking more, started hosting supper clubs, dinner parties. And that just set my trajectory into the food industry a bit more. I think you've said that you had two attempts at being vegan, which I think people yeah. will be encouraged to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did the first attempt end? Uh... <laughs> With me probably getting a chicken taco somewhere. Okay, chicken taco. Um, I wondered what the, yeah, I, I thought what was maybe it, it would be cheese. Oh, no, no, it was actually was probably cheese. It was a slice of pizza in New York City. Because most vegans will say, oh, I went vegan and that was it. And the yeah. rest is history. And, yeah. and, and that's not the case. I don't think that's a, the case for a lot of people. Um, but for me, I think it's important. And I'm not here promoting veganism. I, I rarely ever talk about it. It's just the way I eat and cook. It was a lot difficult back then, 20, 2011, 2012. We still had the same vegetables we do today, mm. but I didn't have an idea of how to incorporate um, those ingredients and make delicious meals. I was used to just eating an avocado roll at a sushi restaurant or like a <laughs> grain bowl at some you know vegan hippie restaurant in New York City. So it was quite boring and repetitive. 
And I decided, okay, I liked what I was eating and enjoyed that. I felt good. And I, and I think I was doing, I was doing it more for the health reasons. I felt I had more energy. I slept better. I felt more alive. I'm an athlete at heart. So I, my recovery was quicker and I did it for those reasons. But yeah, it wasn't, I think until six or seven years ago, I came, I went back to eating plant-based. The fifth desert island dish. Max, what's the dish you eat the most often? Hmm. It's my crispy tofu noodle and steamed veg with a tamari and peanut butter sauce. Probably have this twice a week. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's that. I just say to my wife, tofu noodle, and she's like, yep, cool. So I just crack on and I I can make this dish in 10 minutes. Boiled water, add your noodles, add your veg in there as well. So the noodles will cook with the veg. The noodles will take four minutes to cook. The veg will cook the same amount of time. So usually broccoli or carrots or peas. Um, and then meanwhile, I'm frying off some tofu, get it nice and crispy, usually crumble it up with some corn flour to get a nice crispy brown coating on the outside. And then a tamari peanut butter sauce is tamari, sesame oil, peanut butter, um, some rice wine vinegar, maybe a pinch of chili flakes, shake that up in a jar, pour that over. Then I add all the garnishes, spring onion, coriander, maybe a garlic chili oil. Mm. That sounds so good. I'm going to have to try making that. That sounds right up my street. You just said that you don't often talk about being vegan. And I did notice on your Instagram handle, it doesn't even say plant-based. It doesn't say vegan. And I wondered if that was not wanting to be defined by a label. Because the moment you say that, that's sort of what you're quantified as. Is that a conscious thing that you've done? You hit the nail on the head, Margie. I don't want to be defined by a label. I, I don't like having labels because what if I decide that I want to eat an egg one day or I want to have some chicken or I don't think we should be defined by our labels. Mm. I don't see anyone on the internet saying meat eater or I only eat eggs or whatever. Like people who are vegan, like clearly want people to know they're vegan. Great. Um, I think everyone has their own ways of doing whatever they want. And uh, for me, it's, I don't want to be defined by labels. And I think everyone, everyone should be eating more plants, put more plants on your plate. Um, But yeah, labels, I think can be very toxic. Yeah. We obviously have a huge problem here in the UK. Um, You've said that the average family throws away 800 pounds worth of food a year, 20 million slices of bread are wasted every single day. And yet nearly a million children go to school hungry. Mm. The system is broken. Your latest book was actually based off asking your followers what foods they found they were wasting the most. And then you created the book around those top 30 ingredients, showing really delicious ways to use them, which is such a good idea for a book um, as it's directly solving the problems. I know you got tens of thousands of responses that you worked through to create the book. Was there one ingredient that came up more than any other? Yes, potatoes. Oh, really? Yeah. A lot of the ingredients that came up were, and I, and, and I realized this, I think maybe a, a month into, into the process of writing the book. Why are these ingredients showing up the most? And I wondered, and I figuring out why is this happening. So what I realized is that potatoes, bread, bag salad, apples are four of the top five and milk being the other one and, and bananas, they all come in. They're not just one Mm. item. They're usually in a bag. The potatoes are usually in a bag. Bread's usually in a bag. Bag salad. There's a lot in a bag. All those little leafy greens, bananas in a bunch. So where we see these beautiful ingredients at the supermarket because they make them look beautiful, but then we bring them home and all of a sudden they, they've lost their shine. They've lost the spotlight from the, uh, <laughs> from the supermarket. And there's so many of them, but potatoes are the, the single most wasted ingredient in the UK. And wow, I didn't know that. I wouldn't have guessed that. 4.4 million potatoes every day. I mean, 20 million slices of bread is a lot. Mm. But I think in terms of weight, 4.4 million potatoes. Come on, UK. Like, we love we love the potatoes we here, do right? Love we do love potatoes. That you do, doesn't match up. Yeah, it doesn't with, match up. Hmm, something's going on there. And you're so creative with the recipes that you make. Delicious pestos out of carrot tops mm. and crisps out of potato peelings. What's the most creative and yet delicious recipe that you've come up with that you're sort of the most proud of? The thing about me is that I 
I'm almost shocked and amazed every time I make a dish. <laughs> so I could I could make anything and go, wow, I really nailed this. Well, this well, vice versa, do you ever make anything and you're like, oh, I'm not yeah. going to share that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Like last <laughs> night I made a notalingi recipe and I kind of like riffed on it. And my wife said, oh, uh, that is not otolenghi. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> it's good and to she, have people in your life to keep yeah. you humble. Oh, she's, she's a sous chef and she's the food critic. <laughs> um, so, yeah, sometimes dishes don't don't work. And that's fine because I think you need to have that. But yeah. um, the one dish, if I had to n- nail it down to one one dish... It's probably utilizing aquafaba, mm. which is the liquid in a can of chickpeas. Um, that is often drain, thrown down the drain, and uh, that I can make anything out of. I use that liquid to make granola. I make it to, to make meringues, and I use that liquid to make pasta, homemade pasta without using an egg. I mean, it's kind of magical, isn't it? Mm. Who first discovered that you could make me. meringues? Was it? Was it yeah, you? Do me. you think it was you? Yeah, it was me. Was it actually? Yeah, yeah. Max? yeah. I invented all the, the the vegetables as well that are on the earth. <laughs> no, it wasn't me. It wasn't Max. me. I didn't want to like not give you credit. But I was thinking, <laughs> oh my god, if that was me, I'd put that on a badge. But it wasn't you. Who thought this liquid in the chickpeas would be delicious <gasps> as a meringue? Yeah, who, who? I don't know who. Well, let's, I find, don't have let's it. find out who Oh my gosh, are. you have it right there in front <laughs> yeah. of you. He's actually coming He's here, in. the special guest, <laughs> Stanley Tucci. <laughs> Probably is, actually. <laughs> There's nothing that man can't do. Because the problem is so big, yeah. I think people feel a bit overwhelmed at where to start, and that can often mean that you just don't start. You obviously have a lot of tips, but what would be your number one tip if, if someone's looking to reduce the amount of food that they're wasting or just how do they begin? I love this question. I think the fir- it's the easiest. The e- right now, today, cook the food you already have. I think a lot of people will go out and buy more food. Oh, I need these ingredients to make this recipe. No, you probably already have ingredients at home. You're throwing away a third of the food you bring home anyways. That is money. That's not just food. It's time, it's energy, it's transportation, it's packaging, it's labor, it's water, it's resources. So much goes into the production of food that we we have to earn money to then spend money on food to then throw it away. So um, I think cook the food you already have is the the easiest thing you can do. And so fun too. Your own personal ready, steady, cook challenge. Yeah. My favorite. Maybe say that when you get into the kitchen next. Like ready, (laughs) steady. And then then, be a green pepper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cook. (laughs) Go. We're on to the sixth desert island dish. What is your go-to dinner party dish? Speaking of pasta. Yeah. My go-to, and I know it's maybe not the season for it, is a stuffed butternut squash ravioli with... A crispy sage and sautéed brown butter mushroom. Yeah. So I use the aquafaba to make the ravioli, and it's a it's one of the recipes in my my cookbook. But I I stuff it with mushrooms instead, and I use a asparagus tofu whip. That sounds delicious. Mm. That I like that as an answer because that's actually quite different to what we normally have on the podcast, where people are always make ahead it's minimal effort on the day but a homemade handmade ravioli yeah. that you're sort of cooking to order that's the kind of fresh I, pasta i'd be very impressed by that making it making a fresh pasta from scratch and i usually do it when they're coming like i'll prepare the dough the dough needs the rest and then i'm r- r- rolling it out as they walk as in. they walk through <laughs> hey guys and they're like what are you doing oh, i'm making pasta and they're like no we're having deal. pasta tonight <laughs> oh yeah no big deal no it's just some ravioli don't worry i just you know i'll whip this up in a second yeah, I like that. That's the opposite of what other people do. But you want people to know you've gone to a lot of effort. I go through a lot of effort. <laughs> I mean, I was hosting supper clubs and dinner parties for my flat in, in Brooklyn when I was uh, just starting off. And I always try to make a show out of this. Hmm. Sometimes I'll hide something underneath their chair oh. and say, well, look under your chair now. Like and they're what? like, wait, what is it? I will usually kind of think of a, a theme for the night because it's not just about the meal. It's about mm. everything else. And so at some dinner parties I've I've had monks come to the dinner party and they've led us into like a guided meditation before we eat. I've had people play music. I do like a a blindfold where I put blindfolds on and now the dish that's in front of you, you have to smell it, um, listen to it, see if you hear anything and now take a taste because we we eat with our eyes first Mm. and all the other senses are then coming into play. But I wanted to 
kind of reverse it or just remove that first, um, that first uh, sense of seeing thi- uh, seeing a dish. So I try to make it fun. Yeah, Max, I feel like this is wasted on just your friends. We need you to open a restaurant ASAP. <laughs> On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner, so I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? Mm. The one I look through the most is probably Flavor by Yotemo Uh I just love the photography in that. I think it's Jonathan Lovejoy, I think is the photographer. I love how the recipes are laid out. I could sit in bed and just, I, could, I do this maybe a couple every couple of months. Yo, Tam and I are, are in bed together and I'm just flipping through the pages, <laughs> going through every I recipe. I asked about made. your cookbook, Matt. Oh, sorry. <laughs> right, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? I have one order mm-hmm. and this order is coming in from Burger Joint in New York City at the Leigh Parker Meridian Hotel, Right. which is a fancy hotel, but... It's the exact opposite. Okay. It's a dive. The walls are graffitied. There's movie posters. There's old, like, cult classic movies playing in the corner. The menu on the board above the cashier is written on cardboard, and they give you rules of how to order. So you literally go up and go, you say the order of what you want in that sequence. Mm -hmm. If you start going off the menu and going in different orders, they yell at you. And it's not nice. Okay. The last menu item I would want is a double cheeseburger with everything on it, fries, and a vanilla milkshake. Vegan. Ooh, no. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) No, it would be specifically this double cheeseburger from Burger Joint with everything on it, fries, and and a milkshake. And that's my order. And that's what you say. You don't say anything else. Okay. Otherwise, you'll get shouted at. Oh, and I think you have to say medium. Like how you want it cooked. Okay. Yeah. Or you get shot at it. Okay. Sorry, (laughs) like I am right now. (laughs) No, that would not be a restful way to get sent to the island. Well, that sounds delicious. You can have that. Thank you. And with that, we will send you off to the island. So Max, thank you so much. Those were your desert island dishes. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great. If you don't already, then do come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you very much again to our season sponsor for this season of Desert Island Dishes, Lloyd's Bank. And I will see you again next week. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.